Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Josh. I live in western Pennsylvania. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or help you better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we didn't. I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kinder to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system such as Windows or Mac OS. Oh, I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. And I'm more of a Linux gamer and sysadmin ninja. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro and we'll also divulge what hardware we're using and how we think the hardware may have affected the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 38, recorded on November 30th, 2022. For this episode, we will be reviewing StormD OS and Titan Linux. Josh is not with us today. Hey folks, it's that time of year again. Time for the annual HPR Free Culture Podcast New Year's Eve show. It started on Hacker Public Radio way back in 2011 and aims to bring together the entire community. You get the opportunity to converse with the podcasters you only get to listen to throughout the year. The show begins when Christmas Island welcomes in the new and continues until the last time gone says goodbye to the old some 26 hours later. So feel free to pop in for five minutes or take the entire evening to chat with your friends. You can listen via the live stream or join the conversation using the mobile chat client. All the details are available on the Hacker Public Radio and the Free Culture Podcast website. So come on, join us. It's always a good time. Monthly foibles were, and we discuss what we did this month. I've been spending a few days teaching, had a lot of work to do on my other podcasts, and have otherwise been quite wiped out trying to keep up with daily living. Don't let anyone kid you, 70 years and a few broken pieces keeps you tuckered out. I have almost completely reworked my test laptop with OpenMandriva 4.3 and Ubuntu Unity 22.10, in addition to what I'm reviewing this episode, as well as Bodhi 6 and Mint. But now the mint I'm using is cinnamon instead of mate, and I'm just waiting for Bodhi 7 to reach beta so I can check it out. I also went to play some music over the past weekend in Normal, Illinois, and if you think I belong in Normal, then you've got another think. I also figured out how to get the fingerprint reader to work on my T560 and Mint 20.3 and Bodhi 6. Anything exciting going on with you, Dale? My car was overdue for its oil change. I forgot about it due to my mind being on moving this past June. 
While on my way to have the service done, I found out that the theft deterrent system works. Apparently, my key fob battery was needing to be replaced. I saw a message on the LCD screen of my dash. It was informing me that the car doesn't recognize the key fob and to park to prevent being immobilized. Once parked, I saw another message that my battery was low, followed by instructions to pair my key fob to the car. There was a designated place to put the key fob. I'm guessing it is a contact RFID reader. After a few seconds, the car was happy. Once the battery was replaced, everything was back to normal. I finished installing the security cameras at my friend's house on Friday and Saturday. I had quite a few trips up and down the 16-foot or 14.8-meter adjustable ladder. He wanted to be able to view the cameras while he was not at home. So I set up port forwarding. Well, once we figured out how to log into his ISP-provided modem. I also mounted a battery-operated motion-activated light in his backyard. It was another item I gifted him. It saved him from hiring an electrician. This light has lasted about 12 to 14 months per a set of batteries. I do have an open-source win to announce. As I previously mentioned in the last episode, my friend was having software issues with a streaming box. It was a Ryzen 9 3900X with 64 gigabytes of RAM. Aside from crashing or locking up the computer, he never could get it to stream more than 720p 30 frames per second with three webcams and up to five people on Zoom. The other odd thing was it used over 20% of the CPU with many higher spikes and several gigabytes of RAM. He had already renewed the $60 a year for his streaming software called XSplit and was waiting for tech support to sort out the, uh, the airlogs that he sent to them. It had become very unreliable this past year. Well, he finally gave up on the software he was using. He applied yet another fix provided by support. Unfortunately, it crashed three times in the first 10 minutes, which required a reboot each time. It was actually worse than it was before he applied this new patch. I had mentioned a few times in the past about OBS, or Open Broadcast Server. He called me while I was working, though I was parked for the day. He surprised me by saying that he was testing OBS and tried it in production. He said other than a crash that he caused, it had been running great for nine days. Not only is it reliable, it only uses 3-5% to of the CPU. I can't remember the memory usage, but it was much lower as well. The thing that really impressed him was that he could stream the three webcams and zoom at 1080p 60 frames per second. He is getting pretty good at using it. I will close with some of my Linux activities. I am now using Solus Budgie on my desktop replacing Debian testing. The reasons behind this decision will be mentioned in Beautiful Failures. On Friday morning, I had some issues with Debian. Since I already had plans to finish the camera installation for my friend, I ran Free File Sync to update my backup to my external drive. Then I downloaded a few distro ISOs on my Pangolin for review. In contention were OpenMandriva, PC Linux OS, MX Linux, and Solus Budgie. I decided on Solus Budgie. However, I will say MX Linux was my initial choice. I chose Solus for a few reasons. I have a Solus Plasma on my other desktop. It has been updated for 
over three years. I also forgot how good Budgie looks on Solus. The last reason is that I want to see about packaging more applications for Solus and being more active in their community. My first install rebooted to a Grub prompt, which is quite funny because Solus doesn't use Grub well when UEFI is enabled on the computer. To fix this, I booted using the Solus ISO and ran wipefs-a and the path to my NVMe boot drive. The second install was successful. I would suggest anyone using the current Solus Budgie ISO install updates immediately after signing in. There are some GNOME 43 GTK updates along with uh, some UI changes. I'm pretty happy with it. It has the 515 LTS kernel and the 5.20 NVIDIA binary driver, which I updated it today, and I'm actually on... It's in the updates section. I think it's 6.0.10, and I can't remember what the uh, NVIDIA driver was updated to, so that's, that's cool. There was one odd theming issue with GNOME files, also known as Nautilus. When I selected a dark theme, it stayed with the light theme. I selected the dark theme and it still wouldn't apply. The fix I found in the forum said to open the Budgie Control Center from the terminal. You have to type in Budgie-Control-Center. Then select the uh, global theme setting and exit. You just open it as a regular user. You don't need to use sudo or anything. Sure enough, when I opened the uh, GNOME files again, it was using the theme I selected. It apparently is a GTK4 issue since Nautilus was just upgraded to GNOME 43. I don't know why that worked, but I'm glad that it did. So now let's move on to updates. Updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed. Bodhi devs are working hard on version 7 based on Ubuntu 22.04. Their Alpha 3 is out at this time. Also, OpenMantriva is closing in on a release of version 5. Dale? Solus has updated to kernel 6.0.10. I was right. How about that? I thought I put in the uh, NVIDIA driver in there, but in any case... They have a recent NVIDIA driver. Zero Linux made a change to their Calamaris installer. They removed the net install module, which allowed packages to be installed during installation. It's one of the modularity options in, in uh, Calamaris that many distros never take advantage of. The decision was to make the installation process much faster. Estimates are around five minutes now. Dark Zero also started a podcast called Zero Bytes. It appears to be about current FOSS topics and not centered around the distro. It is available at bytes.zerolinux.xyz, and the link will be in the show notes. And that's uh, the Computer Bytes, B-Y-T-E-S. One I missed from last episode was Void Linux releasing a new ISO. It is a good thing that rolling and continually updated distros release updates to their ISOs. Makes the update process much better. I saw that Blue Star Linux, an Arch-based distro, has finally released an update log. I haven't mentioned them because they were not providing any updates, and I don't use it, so I can't really tell what happens between 
you know, updates and stuff. They created a Facebook page, you know, of all places. I'm not a fan of, <laughs> but that's another thing. At least they made it public. So you scroll down, it's not saying, oh, do you want to read more? You have to sign in. So that's, that's a good thing. And a, uh, a link will be in the show notes. So now we'll move on to the beautiful farriers. Beautiful failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month. And the closest thing I had to a failure this month was from trying to install Open Mandriva LX 4.3 from my Ventoy stick. It got done installing and then refused to install a bootloader. I burned an individual stick and completed the task with no errors. I am seeing this happen in Ventoy like every fifth installation attempt. Ventoy is not perfect, but it's still quite useful. And Dale? I agree about that. It is uh, pretty cool. I didn't turn on my desktop running Debian testing until uh, Wednesday. It was the day before we recorded the uh, previous podcast. Everything was updated with no problems, and we recorded the following evening. I noticed there were updates in the, uh, the morning of the recording, but I waited until Friday to apply them. I am glad I did, but I'm not glad that I updated. There were many library updates, and there was an update to GNOME 43. Since GNOME added more support for Wayland, there were a lot of updates as well. After rebooting, I noticed that when I pressed enter to, you know, type in my password, you know, normal procedure, my profile picture went black. Once signed into Wayland, my dash to panel had flashes when the uh, mouse pointer hovered over it. The flashes and glitches continued when I opened Firefox and tried to type in my password into the Bitwarden add-on. It took a couple tries with stray characters appearing as I typed. I rebooted the computer, and when the login screen appeared, it took me a few tries to type in my password. The screen was glitching and my profile image would appear, and then go black, then reappear. When I selected Xorg instead of Wayland on the login screen, everything worked like normal. So I confirmed it was some issue with Wayland, or Wayland's compositor. I am not faulting Debian for this issue, as this is a testing branch. I would suggest only using the GUI updater, or in the terminal, apt upgrade. The GUI updater uses the equivalent of an apt upgrade. Running apt dist-upgrade is where you can run into some problems, as it removes and or replaces packages. I could have continued using the Xorg session, but I had been wanting to try Solus Budgie again for a while. You know, once a distro hopper, always a distro hopper, I guess. I will wait to see if I return to Debian when Debian 12 is released, hopefully next year. So let's move on to the reviews. Okay. This month, I'm reviewing Storm DOS. Dale turned me onto this one after my excursion into Peppermint as a Debian-based distro was so close to successful. Storm OS is an Arch distro, but they came up with Storm D as a Debian-based version. My hardware. For this review, as usual, I use my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P. This computer has a fourth-generation Intel Core i7-4710MQ. 16 gigs of RAM and a 256 gigabyte Samsung Evo SSD and a 512 gigabyte silicon power SSD 
With both Intel HD Graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT730M graphics, I installed it on the Silicon Power Disk SDB1. Installation ease and issues. I had this installed and running on my system for four weeks when I noticed that I had not taken notes on installation, so a reinstall was in order. I ran the live disk. When it was finished booting, I had the StormD desktop with a Debian logo and set the Wi-Fi and clicked Install StormD. The installer is Calamares. I selected Language and Keyboard, then selected SDB, Replace a Partition, and selected SDB1 and clicked Next. I then selected my username, name, and password and clicked Login automatically and selected Next again, then selected Install, and the installation process began. Four minutes later, I got to reboot. I attempted to regain Grub to another distro on the machine, but apparently another distro had set EFI. I went and reinstalled OpenMandriva, which was a likely culprit. I had installed StormD earlier with only Ubuntuids on the machine and had no problem giving Grub back, and then later installed OpenMandriva. So it's my fault, but I wish they wouldn't keep playing around with whether it's using Grub or EFI. I completed the OM reinstall and rebooted. I then selected Debian on my boot menu. I discovered that Storm DOS ignored my stated request to log in automatically and had to type my password. I then discovered that it also did not install my Wi-Fi password, so I had to do that again. While I was doing that, the dock appeared. So there is a nice panel or taskbar at the top and a dock at the bottom center. It's a nice dock, but it takes several seconds before you find out it's there. So the default wallpaper is monochrome with storm clouds across the center. Not very welcoming to my eyes. I did find a nicer one on the internet, which still had a storming motif. The installed software includes Firefox ESR, two terminals, one of them XFCE, and the GNOME Office, Abbey Word and Gnumeric, some HP tools, GIMP, MPV, VLC, and a few other things. I set about logging into Firefox and installing Discord, Telegram, Audacity, MS Fonts, and a few other things I normally use. NeoFetch is built in and displays at startup when you open the default terminal. Also, when you open terminal, the dock goes away. NumLock is off by default. I attempted to install SoftMaker FreeOffice via the terminal, which instructions begin SU space hyphen and enter password. Apparently, the system does not accept my password. It works fine in pseudo operations, but not for SU. So I just installed my deb file, except GDB did not run. It opened and then closed. I did not find what the problem was, but I did get it to work properly after another sideways attempt or two. It runs fine now that it's installed. I finally got everything installed that I'm going to use, not including configuring them, such as logging into Discord, etc. I then searched for a less gloomy wallpaper and found one, as already mentioned. In all this, including installation of two distros, although I didn't update or configure the second one, it has been less than an hour. That's pretty good time. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. Somehow, after I got OpenMandriva installed, OM left Grub in control of Storm D. So I installed Grub Customizer and ran it. Yay. I got all my major stuff configured without even a hiccup. I could not get TTF-MS core fonts installed via terminal. I then tried Synaptic. Nope, not there. I literally had to do a browser search for the proper directory of Debian 11 to download and install it, but it got done. This is more than your average new user would want to go through, but it got done. Bringing up an installer seems really slow, no matter whether I use Terminal or the GUI version. Ease of use. SoftMaker Office installation was a problem, as already stated, and the facts of the installation not enabling automatic login or writing my Wi-Fi password from the installer are kind of a downer. 
I also had to install a third-party version of TTF-MS core fonts. PySol FC will load but will lock the computer up if you try to play it. This appears to be common to all Debian-based distros, and I haven't explored why. I just take it off my Debians and leave it alone. If I want to play PySol FC, I go boot over to Bodhi. I have been told that you can get the Windows version to run in Wine if you feel like going that way. Other than these things, and even including some of them, every issue I ran into had a fix which I could find without asking anyone or doing much research. Debian has come a long way in the usability department, and with the changes in the social contract, it could become even easier in the near future. Memory and disk use. I am using 14 gigabytes of space on the SSD. Depending on different logins, my memory use is either 588 or 600. I don't know why the difference, but that's a fresh read at boot. Ease of finding help I didn't need any, which says a lot. But Debian is the most supported distro out, and most help for Ubuntu also works. Plays nice with others. Completely not an issue with other distros other than official Ubuntu. If a distro writes boot to EFI, it is harder to operate Grub than if the distro just uses Grub. Stability rocks solid. The problem with Debian is how current it is, not how stable. Similar distros to check out. Peppermint OS, Debian XFCE, MX if you know how to enable SystemD or don't like it anyhow. Solid X. Ratings. Ease of installation. New user, 8 out of 10. Calamaris is a, is a breeze even for a new user. Experienced user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help. Community and web, you'll find it anywhere, 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 8 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 9 out of 10. And stability, 10 out of 10. My overall rating is 8 out of 10. I might have wanted to edge it up, but some of the things were a little bit more difficult than they should have been. Final comments. If you're prone to depression, change the wallpaper. Otherwise, this is a fine, easy-to-use distro. I'm probably not going to keep it, but it would work well for me if I did. For my uses, I think Peppermint 11 is better, but your mileage may vary. That's my review. I ran right through it. What about you, Dale? What are you working on this month? I am reviewing Titan Linux, and I actually got the name right this time because our little side channel conversations on Telegram, he was asking me what I was reviewing, and I said the name of the imagery that they were using and not the name of the distro, <laughs> but we'll get to that. I do not recall where I learned of this distro, so if it was any of our listeners, thank you. Intro. I'm quoting the following from their website, and quote, Titan Linux is an all-new distro built on the Debian Stable branch. It's a fully functional yet minimal KDE Plasma desktop experience focusing on usability and performance with a wide range of hardware support out of the box. This distro is designed with the user in mind, eliminating the dependency on certain meta packages, making it more stable overall. Titan Linux is truly a unique approach to the Debian experience. End quote. The first stable ISO was released at the end of April of this year, according to the date on the SourceForge uh, repo. It was under development for about a year. The developers are Matthew Moore and Cobalt Rogue. He mentions Ben Fitzpatrick in his announcement video 
on YouTube as a contributor slash consultant. And by the way, Ben is the developer of StormOS and StormDOS, my hardware. The laptop I used is my Lenovo ThinkPad T460. It has an Intel dual-core i5-6200U 2.8 GHz CPU, a 14-inch display using Intel HD Graphics 520, 16GB of RAM, and a 500GB Samsung 860 EVO SSD. Installation ease and issues. After booting up the ISO, the grub screen was themed with a trident, which is Titan's logo. And that's what I was telling Moss. He, was, well, he said, what are you reviewing this month? And I said, Trident. And that wasn't correct. <laughs> yeah, I was looking up the Trident OS or the Trident desktop, and they stopped doing that about a year ago. <laughs> so I'm going, uh, I thought they weren't doing that anymore. Well, this is a new ISO. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we were both confused for about 15 minutes or so. <laughs> As with other distros, you have the safe mode options along with the default selected kernels. Calamaris is used for the installation. I double clicked on the install Debian icon on the desktop. I was required to connect to the uh, Wi-Fi hotspot on my phone and plug in my laptop's AC adapter before I could continue. After I exited and opened Calamaris again, it was the usual steps that other distros do when using Calamaris. Once I made my selections and began the installation, it was a slow start. Apparently the install media is compressed and it needed to be uncompressed before continuing the installation. So this is going to be largely dependent on how fast your computer is and your uh, storage drive or, or operating system drive. My first installation attempt failed towards the end of the installation. A window popped up reporting, external command failed with errors. It appeared to have issues fetching from the app uh, repositories for the uh, Grub package. That was actually the main Debian repo. A DNS error basically was what the problem was. I exited the installer and opened the terminal window. I used the network utility called Ping to see if the repo site was online, and it was. Of course, this is the worldwide Debian repository, so I was very suspicious if it was down. So I started the installer again, and everything went as expected. I noticed if you selected the erase the disk option and installed Titan during the uh, partitioning step, they are using an option to create uh, swap space. The choices are no swap, swap with Hibernate, and swap without Hibernate. The difference is one with Hibernate is created equal to the size of memory installed on your computer. Here's a good tip. If the screen lock enables while you're in the live session of uh, Titan, the password is live. L-I-V-E. Yeah, that took a 30 seconds to a minute for me to figure that out. Because <laughs> it was more of the uh, challenge, because I could have easily just rebooted. But yeah, it's one of my, I think it was like my fourth or fifth guess from all the ones I've done in the past. I was taking notes during the installation, and that's how the screen got locked. I looked over, and I'm like, oh, snap. So that was fun. Hey, 
it happens. And I noticed I looked on their page and I didn't see any like installation notes on their on their site, but I didn't go into their forum to see if anyone else had noticed that problem. Post installation hardware facts and issues. I was disappointed when I rebooted the laptop to find a generic blue grub screen. I don't understand since they had such a nicely themed one on the installation ISO. It's very good. My Wi-Fi settings were not transferred to the installation. I was shocked about that. It was good to see that the Wi-Fi manager in the system tray worked much better than it had in the past. It was rescanning for new access points while you're trying to enter the passphrase, which would close the entry box of the access point you're trying to type into. They are using double click instead of the plasma's default of single click. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. I like double click. The theme is a nice dark theme with a grayish white letters. Very easy to read. The wallpaper is of a beach scene overlooking the ocean with a pegasus on its hind legs, you know, rearing up. The application menu, you know, the icon that follows the uh, theming of the Trident image, kind of a neat imagery, it's sort of like the Norse-type mythology. The only system tray icons visible are the status slash notifications, sound, Wi-Fi, the date and time, trash, and a power button. Listed on the bottom panel next to the application menu is Firefox Extended Release, the ESR, the extent was extended service release, I think is what it means. It's at version 102.5, Dolphin Fire Manager, Discover Software Center, and the console terminal emulator. They are using Plasma 5.20.5 on Xorg and Kernel 5.10. This is a very minimalist installation when it comes to the applications. It almost sort of felt like a neon with the sparse applications that they have installed. They have the LX image. It's a QT image viewer. Screenshot, which is a screenshot utility from the uh, LXQT folks. For video viewing, they're using VLC at version 3.0.17.4. Lastly, they have, this is hard to say, Q. PD viewer. So it's, I guess, QPDF viewer. They're using a version 0.4.18. It's uh, using the uh, QT uh, toolkit. Grub customizer is uh, version 5.1.0 and is installed by default, which I thought was nice. I love that. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yakwake, which I know where they came up with that word, but it just doesn't sound like a pleasant word to say. <laughs> Um, they're at 20.12.1. It's an alternative to KDE's console terminal, so like a drop-down terminal. A package manager common to the Lubuntu distro is available called Muon at version 5.8.0. Have you had any experience with uh, Muon, Moss? It's ringing bells, but I don't have a memory of it. Okay. I was just curious because it was sort of new to me. It functions similarly to the uh, Synaptic Package Manager. It can only install, remove, and update the Debian packages, so you're not going to have any of the container app supports like uh, Flatpak and uh, Snap. Speaking of the uh, container app support, Flatpak is installed but is not configured, and Snap is not installed. And a little side note here, 
That's the thing that always kind of puzzles me about Flatpak. It is modular, so you could use any repo you want. But basically, all we have is Flathub. <laughs> so, I mean, it is kind of odd that these distros don't, despite a fault, enable Flathub. But I digress. Here are some things that set Titan apart from other Debian distros. They changed some of the meta packages that are uh, installed or removed packages that could uh, break functionality. Some meta packages have dependency issues that can cause problems for people who uh, want to install custom packages. And to get a little other things, I think I mentioned what a meta package is in previous episodes. It's basically a collection of applications that get installed all at once when you use that singular name. Titan offers some utility packages called Titan's Toolbox, which are listed in the Titan Toolbox menu under All Applications. There are some NCurses-based applications that will open in a terminal window. They are easy to navigate using the arrow keys, but there's no mouse support. These applications include other scripts they are created that use existing uh, utilities that are available in Linux. Advanced tools for updating Grub, installing backported kernels, kernel headers, and removing unused kernels. I thought that was a nice one because depending on how often your distro updates, you can have a long list of uh, kernels. That's what auto-remove is for. Yeah, that, that too. But I mean, this is intended for people not to have to use the terminal, but that is a good point. Um, that's probably what it does, actually. I didn't look at the script. I looked at a few of their scripts to see what they were actually doing. Installation of uh, legacy lib app indicators. That's so uh, legacy for uh, some other applications that don't use the newer application uh, indicator services. A lot of them are using things like Dbus and etc. Apt tools is for repairing apt and dpackage is a dpkg. It's the uh, Debian package installer. It installs the um, actual .deb files and the .deb packages, and you can use app too. Cleaning the apt cache and dumping package manifests. The manifest is a list of all the installed packages. This utility will create a text file of all the installed packages in your home directory, enabling extra repositories such as non-free, contrib, and the backports, along with the 32-bit architecture, which is unnecessary for people that like to play games, like with uh, Steam. Installing Snap and Flatpak support, which is pretty handy. Browser installer for Brave, Chromium, Chrome, Firefox, ESR, LibreWolf, Vivaldi, and PaleMoon. Installing uh, the uh, LibreOffice package, DVD playback support, Vert Manager hypervisor, VirtualBox hypervisor, and the App Image Launcher. And by the way, hypervisors are software allowing you to install and run operating systems as if they were applications on your computer. Enable, disable, view the status of the UFW firewall. System updater that checks for updates and performs a full upgrade. This is also a, a dist hyphen upgrade. It just all depends on if you're using apt-get or if you're using app. A tweak tool to toggle the NeoFetch uh, output on the terminal window because when you open the terminal, it automatically runs NeoFetch for you and you can have that turned off. Configure aggressiveness of swap, a kernel setting that shows how the system uses the swap space. It gets more complicated than that, but that's enough for 
of that type of description. One labeled as application terminator. It's actually the XKill application. Once opened, anything you click on, its process will be terminated, including Plasma itself. Though if you do, it'll automatically restart. Yes, and if you play with XKill, be very, very careful because it will not go away until you click on something. So if you click it by accident, you're going to kill something. <laughs> Just consider it collateral damage. ClearSwap is labeled ClearSwap, which uses the swap on and swap off commands to disable and re-enable your uh, swap space. Hardware information is a script that uses the INXI utility, which displays all the hardware information on your computer. It's a wonderful um, application. Restart Network Services is a script that uses SystemCTL to restart Network Manager. And lastly, there is one that will restart the uh, Plasma shell. I was going to include that in the notes, but that was way too long for me to read. <laughs> and I guess that's why it's a script. So, case in point. I believe these are very good additions to the distro. I know some people don't want to type encrypted commands in the terminal. These scripts solve that issue in an easy-to-use way. Now onto the ease of use. I use their utility to enable the FlatHub Flatpak repository. It also installed the plugin for Discover. That saved me a trip to the FlatHub website to uh, get the command again, because as many times as I've done it, I still can't remember it. And I didn't have to search for the uh, Discover plugin. Since my preference is to use the terminal to install and update applications, I made it a point to use the Discover application to perform all those tasks. As Moss and I mentioned in the previous episode, Discover has come a long way in the past few years. I still found it a bit quirky when searching for packages. Sometimes my search results were buried under four or five or so pages of other results. In other cases, Discover would continue the search when it had already displayed what it found. I, out of curiosity, let it run to see how long it would run for. Actually, I forgot it was running while I was eating and watching TV. After about an hour and a half, it was still searching. So I can say that it was 100% more reliable in years gone by here. It never crashed or gave me any obscure errors in the past month. I just loved those back six, seven years ago. The, uh, it was almost as useful as the old Windows error messages. I tried to edit the .desktop file for Signal so that it would minimize the system tray. It's another one of my irritations <laughs> with uh, that. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name. It's the thing that uh, Google started to uh, make apps universal amongst the uh, operating systems. But I'm blanking on it. But I'll... Electron app? Electron. Thank you, Moss. That's just one of my annoyances, but I go on. For some unknown reason, it would not. I have no idea why. It did it the same, typing it in manually, but not in the menu item. Then I attempted to copy the org.signal.capitalsignal.desktop file to uh, my .local slash share slash applications folder. That's when I saw that they were using a symbolic link, or a symlink for short, so I couldn't copy the file. So I just gave up and moved on. Yeah, you know, symlinks are this, you can have a pointer to something else and have it appear somewhere else. And that's about all I'm going to say about that because it gets confusing. It's one of the vestiges of the old Unix days, I guess. 
During one of the times I edited the org.signal.capital.sinsignal.desktop file, I logged out and tried to log back in so it could reload things, you know. After entering my password, it just froze and never logged in. I pressed Control-Alt-F2 to open the uh, virtual terminal window. I proceeded to log in and locate the process ID for SDDM, the display manager that Plasma uses, followed by sudo kill-9 and the number of the process. Then I pressed Control-Alt-F7 to return to the display manager. I attempted to log in again, but it froze a second time. So I returned to the virtual terminal and typed sudo reboot. After it rebooted, it got stuck at a blinking cursor in the left-hand corner. So I held the power button down for five seconds and forced the laptop off. I powered the laptop back on and was able to log in. That was very odd and only happened once. Otherwise, everything worked as expected. Memory and disk use. 13 gigabytes of space used on the SSD. 518 megabytes of memory used uh, reported by the free uh, hyphen HM command. And I know some people like calling them, that's what threw me off, the uh, gigabits and the meg- mebibits is what the new way of referring to that is. Mebibits. <laughs> yeah, mebibits. Yeah, it's like, like you're mumbling or whatever. Ease of finding help. I didn't seek out any help. They do have a form available on their website for uh, the ease of finding help. Plays nice with others. It, as expected, worked fine, with the added bonus of having Grub Customizer installed. Stability. Other than the odd SDDM lockup, I didn't have any other lockups or crashes. Similar distros to check out. MX Linux KDE Edition, Debian, and they don't have a separate edition, so you'll have to install KDE from the, uh, from the installer, and uh, Solid K as a Moss's suggestion. Ratings. Ease of installation. New user, 8 out of 10. Experienced user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help community and web, 10 out of 10. It's Debian under the hood, so you can go anywhere and uh, ask, even in the Ubuntu areas. The ease of use, 8 out of 10. And I did that just because even though they were really well done, scripts, everything, they were not point and click. You still had to use like the arrow keys and, and everything, but I didn't find a problem with them. Plays nice with others, 10 out of 10. Stability, I was going to give it a 10 out of 10, but when I had that odd thing of SDDM, I have no idea what caused that. And I know it's not my laptop because of how many distros I've had on it for the past two years. <laughs> so overall rating is 8 out of 10. My final comments, this overall was a good distro. I could see the amount of effort that was put in, especially for all the utilities and the scripts that were created. Their attempts to keep the user in the GUI were successful in my book. With that said, I wouldn't say this is a new user distro. It would be more suited to the user that only wants to install only what they need. A new or newer user would spend too much time installing applications that other distros install by default. Thanks for that, Dale. I wanted to point out this is the first time 
It took our 38th episode before we had a uh, episode with all of the distros being reviewed being Debian. <laughs> and Moss was one of the ones reviewing them. <laughs> yeah, I reviewed Debian. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to new releases. New releases this month from October 28th to 11.30, Zorin OS 16.2, Linux Lite 6.2, Nitrox 2022-1101, TrueNAS 13.0-U3 Core, Gparthead Live 1.4.0-6, Clonezilla Live 3.0.2-21, Alma Linux 8.7, Ganopix 22, Sparky Linux 6.5, Fedora 37, Euro Linux 8.7, Backbox 8, Linux FX 11.2.22.04.5, Salex 15.0 Live XSCE, Rocky 8.7, Alma Linux 9.1, Alt 10.1, Reborn OS 2022.11.13, Smart OS 2022.11.17, KDE Neon 2022 11.17, Watt OS R12, Blue Star 6.0.9, Absolute 2022 1120, Oracle 8.7, Tails 5.7, Proxmox 7.3, Alpine 3.17.0, Blue Onyx 5211R, PC Linux OS 2022.11.20, Uruk 3.0, Easy OS 4.5.2, Rocky 9.1, Snarl 1.24, Hunix 16.0.9.0, Salex 15.0 Live, Blue Star 6.0.10, Proxmox 2.3 BS, Oracle 9.1, Eurolinux 9.1, and GRML 2022.11. Note that RHEL based distros have 8.x and 9.x series. I'm reporting updates on both series. Those are not uh, duplicates. Okay. Feedback. Tony says there is no email this month. If you'd like to change that for next month, please write us. Also, if one of our interactions in one of our online groups is something you'd like to hear reported on in the episode, let us know. Announcements. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. You can find Josh on, at Josh on Tech on most social networks or email him at joshontech at pm.me. You can also find him on the Crowbar Kernel Panic podcast. Dale? I'm at Dale underscore CDO on Telegram and Discord. My email is Dale underscore CDO at PM. Me. And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and I'm on Mastodon as at zyvola at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale and Dylan, at itsmoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those who make this project possible. Archive.org for storing and helping distribute this program. Audacity, which we use to record and edit the show. 
Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing and editing the podcast. Joshua Lowe for work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, used as our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Tervals for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source slash library software. We will be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. Mm-hmm.